0: going from Australian accent to Swiss accent. (laughs) It's night. Jesus sitting alone, leaning back on soft cushions on the flat roof, enjoying the soft evening breeze after a scorching hot day. The relentless crowds have dispersed. His night solace is interrupted by an unusual visitor, a really unusual visitor Nicodemus, a well known, well dressed, highly educated, and respected teacher, a moral and religious man, a Pharisee, the most strict and conservative Jewish sect. He served on the Supreme Court, the very council who would later condemn Jesus to death. A very prominent and impressive visitor who demands respect. The cream of the nation. It doesn't get any better. Or so it seemed. Why would such a man come to Jesus? Jesus was nothing like Nicodemus. He was not wealthy, didn't study under some famous rabbi, had no impressive credentials, and as some accused him of, was not religious or moral enough. And to top it all off, he was from backwater Nazareth. Not exactly the stuff that dreams are made of. And yet... This influential teacher sought out Jesus at night. Nicodemus had a lot to lose from being seen hanging out with this controversial figure. It would be embarrassing to associate with the guy who had just caused a scene in the temple by overthrowing tables and in essence, taking ownership over the temple. Nicodemus had a reputation to protect. It says in John 12, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear. They would be put out of the synagogue. A lot to lose. Why did he take this great risk? There was something different about Jesus. He spoke with authority. He performed miracles. Remember last week when Tim spoke about water being uh, uh, made into wine? He had to have come from God. We sense that Nicodemus had an inquisitive, open, and curious mind. Notice he does not argue with Jesus or try to entangle him in some tricky theological questions like many of uh, his fellow Pharisees did. Could it be that under all the impressiveness that was Nicodemus, something was missing? A longing, a yearning for more? Jesus ignores Nicodemus' compliment. Instead, he goes straight to Nicodemus' deepest need. Encounters with Jesus often lead into uncomfortable and unpredictable waters. Touching a wound hurts. But thankfully, Jesus is gentle and kind and gives us what we really need not what we think we need. Remember that Nicodemus is a very moral and religious man who has spent his life studying, memorizing, and teaching religious laws. Influential, wealthy, and envied a good life. Nothing missing. Yet Jesus has this unsettling habit of not being impressed. I wish we, I should say I, would be less impressed by externals and minister more to the inner and true needs of people. Jesus tells Nicodemus bluntly, you missed the point. If you want to have the life God offers and enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. Born again? Excuse me? These must have been shocking words to Nicodemus' ears. The Greek word here is anothen, which also means born from above. Nicodemus, you have come to me for additional learning, but what you really need is eternal life, a new life. In spite of Nicodemus' great learning, he did not recognize the Messiah. Recently, I listened to a debate of highly educated scholars from different fields who genuinely admire Jesus' teachings and his values, but they fail to see him as the source of life. It reminded me of my teenage years when I was impressed with Jesus' teaching, just as I was impressed with Mahatma Gandhi's or Nelson Mandela's teaching, I had no idea who I was dealing with. Not yet. I was curious to find out what Nicodemus would have understood by the term kingdom of God. Even though the Old Testament does not use this phrase, it clearly teaches the kingship of God throughout. It was at the heart of Jewish theology. Nicodemus as a Jew would have been waiting for the Messiah to come and free Israel from Rome's bondage and set up his kingdom on earth. What mattered was to be born into the right family, be a child of Abraham, God's chosen people. So Jesus' words would have been a revolutionary concept. The kingdom is personal, not national or ethnic. And the requirement to enter is a second birth. And shockingly, it's for everyone, available to all. This expression, uh, to be born again, I'm sure you've been thinking, has been abused and misused in our time, to the point where even Christians avoid it. It's become synonymous with extreme and politicized Christianity and is mocked in our uh, popular culture. But the birth metaphor for the relationship between God and his people was used already in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 32. You deserted the rock who fathered you you forgot the God who gave you birth. And many of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel used the birth metaphor. Jesus chose this very image to talk about his kingdom and not as something optional, a nice addition to our religious life, but essential. Nicodemus is puzzled. He was a very intelligent man Rebirth is obviously impossible and absurd. So what on earth, Jesus, do you mean? Something even more miraculous and spectacular than a biological birth. Only one way to enter this world. Only one way to enter the kingdom of God. Birth is obviously familiar to all of us. We all have been born, and we can thank our mothers for the sweat, blood, and tears they went through to give us life. Jesus uses this very familiar process to explain to Nicodemus a spiritual, invisible reality that with all Nicodemus' religious seal, he did not understand. Knowledge does not equal salvation. Let's face it, giving birth is an incredibly painful process and one I vowed after each consequent child to never, ever, ever repeat again, yet resulting in incredible joy, pain as I have never experienced before, and joy as I have never experienced before. As I looked through our baby pictures, I thought that this picture captured the best. The mix of pain so severe and joy so intense that it hurts. And the same is true for the new birth. Intense pain of the crumbling of our old world order, and intense joy of new life. It says in John 16, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. It's a matter of life and death especially 2,000 years ago, and still in many parts of the world. It is the leading cause of death for the daughters of Eve. Birth, a matter of life and death. Jesus is talking about eternal life, eternal death. Jesus doubles down as Nicodemus listens in confusion. He says the new birth is of water and spirit. This would be a clear echo in this Jewish scholar's mind to Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you heart of flesh. God promised to cleanse our hearts and fill us with his spirit. A key phrase here is verse six. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit human effort in the flesh is never going to produce spiritual fruit. A sunflower seed is going to produce only one kind of plant. A sunflower. (laughs) I have the proof. Remember last summer when I passed out sunflower seeds to everyone to illustrate my sermon? Well, somebody... Planted it in her garden, and voila, this was the result. <laughs> Sunflower seeds produce sunflowers. Flesh produces flesh. Spiritual life can only come from the Spirit of God. We cannot regenerate ourselves. We need a divine operation. And the only authority who can speak of the realm of God with knowledge is the only one that has access to both the earthly and the heavenly realm. The word incarnate. The birthing image seems to best describe this spiritual transformation that takes us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Early Christians like Peter and Paul used this new birth metaphor to describe what takes place at conversion. In Titus 3, it says, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. First Peter says, in his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again in 1 Peter, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. I want to make an important point here. The new birth experience is different for all of us. For some, like me, it's a dramatic experience that we can pin down on a calendar to the minute. But for others, it's a long process. I actually uh, called up some of my sons who grew up in in a Christian home to ask what it was like for them. The emphasis is not on the experience of birth. The emphasis is on the new life. So either way, if our encounter with the living God is a dramatic experience or a gradual realization, it comes down to daily choosing to walk in this new life that leads to transformation. C.S. Lewis, as always, puts it best. He compares the biological life bios that comes to us through nature and is always in decay to the spiritual life, zoe life, the fullness of life which only comes from God. Going from bios to zoe would be like a statue becoming a real person, a new genesis. After birth, We want to feed and nurture the new life. We want to see it grow and thrive to maturity. And the best part, age does not diminish diminish this, thank God. It's the opposite. Though outwardly, it says in 2 Corinthians, we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And that is why we know old and frail saints who are spiritual giants. We can neither control our physical nor our spiritual birth. Both are a gift from God. As Nicodemus is trying to wrap his head around this extraordinary teaching, Jesus illuminates further how new life happens. He introduces a new image, the wind. Interestingly, both in Greek and in Hebrew, the same word is used for wind, breath, and spirit, which is true in Arabic as well. The word pneuma in Greek, where we get pneumonia from, and ruach in Hebrew... Remember Genesis 2? Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God's breath, his spirit, produces life. New birth is always the activity of the Spirit. Like wind is invisible, but we can see the effect, so it is with the Spirit of God. I imagine the evening breeze rustling the leaves on the nearby olive trees as they converse. The Spirit of God moves freely and cannot be controlled or contained. The effects are clearly seen a new life new priorities, a new identity, a new vision, new love. It's as if someone turned the light on, which someone did. I grew up in the Rhine Valley in Switzerland, with high mountain ranges on both sides of the valley. We often have to contend with thick fog, My sister, who lives up on the mountain, she gets a kick out of sending us photos of the fog soup taken from her sunny balcony and reminding us of her superior view. (laughs) The sun is there, but we in the valley cannot see it. It takes only a few minutes to drive up the mountain to suddenly cut through the thick fog and burst into the sunlight. Jesus invites us to see a new reality that's always been there, but we could not see it. And now he uses a third image to illustrate the cost of this new life. He points to a story in the Old Testament that would be very familiar to Nicodemus. And I apologize to all who have a snake phobia. I will make this short and I promise no pictures. Again, he illustrates a spiritual invisible truth with a well-known story. After God had miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Yet they started, surprise, to complain. And grumble about the terrible food that God provided for them. God's punishment? Poisonous snakes. Moses interceded to God for mercy. And God provided a remedy for their healing. A really weird remedy. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What? Just look? That seems ridiculous. How can a mere look heal me from a poison? I can hear some of the Israelites mock Moses and dismiss him as crazy. But the ones that believed God and believed this unusual remedy were healed. What a powerful symbol of faith. This is the story Jesus uses to illustrate the mystery of how we can be healed. Not from a physical poison, but from the most dangerous poison of all. Our inherent sin. Humankind has a deadly disease. Initiated by another snake. We have clear evidence of this reality every time we turn on the news. There's only one cure. Just as the snake was lifted up and a look at it would heal the dying people, so Jesus, the Son of God, would be lifted up on a Roman execution pole. And whoever looked at that cross in faith would be healed. What did it cost Jesus? Everything. What does it cost us? The only thing required was and is faith believe. John is so emphatic about this that he mentions the word believe almost a hundred times in his gospel. In fact, that's the purpose of his writing. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe and live. God provided a remedy. When they looked by faith, believing God, as ridiculous as it seemed, they were saved. They only had to look. Easy, right? Don't you think we would do anything to look at that brown snake and live? I was very surprised in my studies to learn what happened next. King Hezekiah removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that point, What did the Israelites do? They had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan, 2 Kings. They even gave it a name. What was a symbol of healing had become an idol, a substitute for belief. How quickly we fall into this trap good gifts become idols, our intellect, our status, our family, our kids, our accomplishments, our ambitions. They might be good gifts, but they are not the giver. We don't usually thank the chocolate bar. We thank the friend that gave it to us. In the field of natural healing, I see this happen so often. We thank the water. We elevate plants and stones and stars to something they're never meant to be. We are called to worship the one that created all these things, not the thing itself. And then in the most famous of all verses that sums it all up, Jesus gives us the reason why God would have mercy on us and come and rescue us. Why he would lift up the snake. Why he would ultimately lift up his son on a cross. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave us his son, His only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves people. Love is the reason. Love is the foundation. And love is the motivation. At the center of the universe is a love relationship. Father, Son, and Spirit, and most astonishing of all, we are invited in. Now, the metaphor of birth makes even more sense. A mother labors in excruciating pain and bleeds and tears, and sometimes even gives her life in order to give birth to new life. God, out of love for us, paid the ultimate price, the pain of seeing his son lifted up on a cross, becoming sin for us, becoming the curse who bears the wrath of God in our stead so we could live, to save us, to heal our poisoned race. Look and live. Someone bled to give you bios life. And someone bled to give you zoe life. Eternal life from above. I cannot explain what got into me 40 years ago in that living room and I crumbled to the floor in utter desperation and pain and cried out to Jesus to save me. My friends had witnessed to me. I had heard. I had seen. Yet at that moment, that changed my life forever. I believed. Undoubtedly carried by much prayer. The wind The Spirit of God blew. I was born from above. I received Zoe, life. I had looked up to Jesus' suffering on the cross. And for the first time, I understood it was for me. Birth, no greater pain, no greater joy a whole new reality opened up to me. So much bigger, more beautiful than what I could see through the narrow lens of my own understanding. It's like trudging up a steep mountain pass, sweaty and dusty and tired. And you come around the bend in the road. And this majestic view opens up. Mountain peaks as far as the eye can see. But you know what? Even the most majestic scene is just a shadow of his beauty and majesty. And the most amazing thing is he invites us in. He wants us to see it too. He wants to share it with us. And nowhere does Jesus express this stunning love for us more than in John 17, a verse that makes my heart skip a beat. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. What a declaration of love. Not keeping rules, but invited into a love relationship. If you have never looked at Jesus in faith, not as a teacher or a great example of virtuous living, but as your savior, I invite you to look now. I invite all of us to daily look. There's a beautiful song by Lauren Daigle. Maybe some of you know it. Father, I hear you say, Look up, child. God wants everyone to experience this new birth, no matter who you are or where you've been. He so loved the world, all of us, and that includes you. There is no formula. Everyone will experience it differently. But the effects are dramatic. New and eternal life in Christ. The wind blows in unexpected places, like my heart, like yours. In fact, all over the world. The same spirit blows in Iran, in India, and even in seemingly impossible places like North Korea, where I've learned Christians in labor camps secretly worship in stinky latrines because guards would never go there. The spirit cannot be contained, restrained, or held back. Unstoppable, even by the greatest world powers. And as children grow to become parents of their own, so the spirit expands and multiplies. It's really hard when you love someone so deeply, like a new child or a new bride or a new grandchild, not to annoy all your friends by constantly wanting to show pictures of them. Oops, I have no idea how that got there. (laughs) This is my beautiful new daughter-in-law, Michaela, and my son Brian. We reflect our love. We magnify what or who we love. One of the greatest phone calls I got was, one of, uh, was from my, one of my brothers a few years ago. I still actually remember where I stood in the kitchen, expecting the worst because of his struggles with addiction. This is what I heard before I started dancing. Edith, I found Jesus, and I thought you would like to know. Yes, I did. A new birth. No greater joy. We don't all have biological children, but we can all have spiritual children. Granville family. We cannot produce what we need. We don't even know what we really need. In our time of rapid changes and uncertainty, Jesus calls us to look to him, to trust him. Look up, child. Father, you know our individual needs, you know our church family's needs. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you to move among us, to cleanse and fill us we look to the cross in repentance and faith, to believe not once, but over and over. Spirit of God, whose great passion it is for people to find and love Jesus, stir us up, blow a fresh wind of renewal and hope. Our individual birth, is set within the larger context of rebirth for all creation. It's both personal and cosmic. And as creation groans in childbirth, a day of renewal will come, the rebirth of all things at the end of time, a new heaven and a new birth. God desires to make all things new. But I left the best part to the end. Nicodemus is actually mentioned twice more in John's Gospel. Both mentions are amazing, and they show us what happened to Nicodemus after this visit. In John 7, we see him defend Jesus in the Sanhedrin, where he stands up against his peers and lobbies for a fair trial. But then, in John 19... He, talking about Joseph of Arimathea, was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. After the crucifixion, Nicodemus and Joseph are taking Jesus' body down and anointed with an extravagant amount of spices. Thirty-four kilos of spices, as for a king. It reminds me of Mary of Bethany, who lavishly poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. Costly devotion that ignores ridicule and risk. A once secret disciple, now willing to take a public stand while the apostles were hiding. Birth, wind, snakes. Isaiah 45 says, look unto me and you will be saved. Let's walk in the newness of this life that Jesus paid for in the power of his spirit and join him in his healing, restoring, rebirthing action in this world until he comes again. Let's pray.